Welcome back, Acipians. We just got back from the annual meeting. A lot of really good speakers and good fellowship. Uh, time well spent. It was an educational experience. Uh, I don't think that is paralleled by anybody anywhere at any meeting source. Uh, the uh, regional and group meetings are incredible, too. So ASAP really puts out, I think, very high-quality objectives uh, to get a great educational experience, fellowship, and also just just to be um, in a real electric environment. Like I always say, it's like plugging your head in a light socket. And I have with me three uh, very important people today. They're great clinicians. Um, John Prinskis, his wife, Terry, and uh, the Lifetime Achievement Award recipient, Stan Helm. So uh, we all just kind of sat down. We just pulled aside and started talking about some of the topics that are important to us. Of course, CDC guidelines keep coming up, and they are going to continue to come up. And the opioid crisis drives this. Uh, The CDC guidelines were designed for uh, primary care and uh, really objectified to be um, a useful tool maybe to develop something along the lines of processes to maintain a a very compliant environment. They have taken on a life of their own, as I think everybody knows. We talk about that a little, and we talk about uh, uh, some other topics that I think are are near and dear. As um, you get in these kind of environments where the um, course is uh, varied from regenerative medicine to opioids to topics of the day. Um, you you really want to sit down and, and and retain that intellectual property. And so we just sat for a few minutes before uh, John and his wife Ter- uh, Terry had to go. Um, and uh, you know I, I wanted to capture the moment. I, I call it ambushing and. I think we came out of there with some great stuff. So um, I'm going to go into this. I'll let them introduce themselves and some interesting comments at the end of this lecture discussion and uh, fellowship. Um, <laughs> I bet you didn't know, John. Uh, well, I'll, I'll let I'll let that come out later. All right, this is a special edition of the podcast. I have three very special people. Stan Helm has been on before. He's a friend of the show. We uh, enjoy having Stan on, and he's got some great topics. And two new folks. Go ahead and tell us about yourself. I'm Dr. John Prunskis. I'm CEO and medical director of the Illinois Pain Institute and the Regenerative Stem Cell Institute. We're the largest pain practice and long-established pain practice in uh, the Chicago area. We have eight locations. And uh, this last year, my main focus has been uh, as a uh, White House appointee to the Health and Human Services Best Practices Pain Task Force. And uh, for one year, uh, I've been working with other uh, selected uh, experts um, in the uh, in formulating solutions uh, and, and identifying gaps 
uh, in uh, current uh, practices in the management of painful conditions. And our report should be submitted to Congress uh, by the end of this month. Yeah, that's a big deal. Um, our friend Andrea Trescott is on that committee, too. And you have to be selected. It's at a national level. Um, they meet in Washington, and they, they formulate near policy. And this stuff does tend to evolve into policy over time, as we've seen with the CDC guidelines, correct? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, this is not a Democrat issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's not a you know, rich issue or poor person's issue. It's really a national problem. And there's been uh, tremendous interest, interest that's exceeded actually uh, what I thought it would be uh, from uh, not only congressmen and senators, but also uh, every uh, organization of specialty societies has, has weighed in on their comments and our drafts, and we've received over 6,000 letters from both uh, organizations, medical societies, and as well as individuals um, who would like, who, who wanted to provide input into our document. And it's timely. This is the opioid crisis, and that's probably impetus for this whole thing, but in reality, um, the pendulum's swinging, and it's uh, it's going to go against the patient and access to care if we don't address it uh, at not only a federal level, but eventually trickle down to state level. Now, you have next to you uh, somebody very special. Uh, go ahead, Terry. Tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Dr. Terry Dallas-Prunskis, and I'm John's wife. And um, I've been in practice for over 30 years. We're partners with the Illinois Pain Institute, and uh, I'm past chairman and director of the University of Chicago Pain Clinic. Um, so my, my interest of obviously is interventional pain, but I have a passion for regenerative medicine. Yeah, tell, tell me what, uh, just, we've had regenerative medicine on the show before, but uh, tell me about your spin. Well, um, you know, there's so many scams out there. And when yeah. I first got involved with it, I was a little bit leery um, because I had heard so much craziness about regenerative medicine. But as um, I've, I've read more and, you know, we've seen more and more patients, the outcomes have been tremendous. You know, we've had some miracle things happening in the office that I call miracles. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just fascinating what, what's out there now. Um, and available to patients. So this opioid thing uh, is coming in a timely manner because we've got so many things out there offered for uh, interventional pain. Yeah, regenerative medicine has taken um, a step forward. Uh, a few years ago, I was like, why would anybody want to do that stuff? But you're injecting joints. Uh, are you injecting at the spine level? I am injecting the spine level. And I'm recently I had a really great case. Um, 23-year-old uh, woman um, had a hemorrhagic stroke. She's 27 now. And she had plateaued out with her, with her therapy, uh, completely paralyzed on the left side, some function on the right. And uh, vision was very poor, double vision. And so her mother came to me and asked, would we do something, you know, just try? And I said, well, you know, I, I'm, I don't know. We'll, we'll try. So we did um, liposuction. We used autologous uh, stem cells. And we ended up in injecting them um, into her. Um, intravenously, and then we also did uh, injection uh, supranasal, intranasally, and um, a couple days later, her the nystagmus was gone. Wow. I mean, her vision just straightened up. And a couple of weeks ago, her mother sent me a video with her riding a bike, a uh, tricycle. So I mean, it was just amazing. Um, you know the. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, folks realize that 
It's not just injecting sometimes. It's uh, getting access to the, the blood system. And the blood system can obviously go to great areas that we can't inject. And that's what happened here. Yeah, and we, you know, we used a little bit of Manitou because I wanted to open up the blood-brain barrier. I don't know how much effect it really had, but you know, it got there. Something happened, and it was tremendous. That's a great story, John. Um, take us, uh, take us into the task force for just a minute, because Terry brought up a really good point. The opioid crisis is here, and we are looking at. Uh, groundbreaking and, and re- true breakthroughs in regenerative medicine to help us minimize opioids. But what's going to happen? I mean, I, I know I get asked a lot, are people going to be able to get their drugs? The answer is that's our hope. And uh, what, what got uh, me on the radar of the White House and Health and Human Services was for at least 20, 25 years when Terry and I would speak at national meetings. If you remember those time periods, the the conventional wisdom was for doctors to recommend prescribing as many opioids as the patient requested, that there's no ceiling effect, the risk of addiction is very small. Terry and I were voices in the forest, and I know uh, that you were at some of those meetings where we would respectfully disagree, stating that we feel the diagnosis has to be made, but at the same time use uh, opioids as little as possible, try to fix the underlying condition. But at the same time, for those patients who truly need opioids, that there should be no stigma attached to them and no stigma or excessive um, uh, inf- uh, excessive pursuit by state, local, or federal officials on physicians who are ethically providing uh, opioids. Again, I'm not talking about you know, other types of scenarios. And so it was important to me and others to include in the actual task force that there is a section specifically regarding patients who need opioids should truly get them, and also at the same time physicians who are ethically prescribing opioids um, should not be uh, the focus of of uh, arrest and potential incarceration uh, or actual incarceration uh, by state, local, and federal uh, authorities. Uh, having said that, it still remains, and, and this is what Terry and I have been saying and others have been saying, although we were in the minority, that making the diagnosis is critical, uh, and it has to be as a specific diagnosis as you can, not just patient has back pain or neck pain, before consideration of prescribing opioids and making sure non-opioid techniques, whether it's medication, therapy, interventionals, have been uh, attempted. That's exactly right, and that's... Uh part of the recommendations, and it, it's going beyond uh, the, uh, the guidelines we got in 2016. It's a good segue to Stan Helm right now, um, who, who can kind of brush us up on where the CDC guidelines are going now, because they were meant for primary care physicians. As you can see, prescribing opioids is complex and requires um, breadth of knowledge. Low back pain is a symptom, but that's what people were prescribing these potentially toxic drugs for. So the CDC guidelines jumped in, and what happened, Stan? Well, what happened was that there was application of the um, the, maxim- <coughs> the maximal dose that was uh, recommended in the CDC guidelines, the MED, as an absolute upper bound. 
And not only that, uh, it was being applied in situations where it was not applicable, including cancer pain, hospice, palliative care, and also addiction medicine, which is very strange because addiction medicine has been separated out under the Controlled Substances Act to uh, SAMHSA. It's not under the medical boards. Uh, and there's recently been a lot of pushback from this, and now the CDC is admitting that these are not a absolute upper bound, that insurers, pharmacies, medical boards shouldn't be um, applying that as an uh, absolute upper limit. So I think that while the it's not an upper limit, if physicians are going to be providing higher doses, you should do so in, as John says, a medical manner. Define why you're doing it, define the benefit, and provide a rationale as to why you're providing these uh, doses. If there's been any change, or I would say the big change that we see in opioid prescribing, uh, the intellectual basis for it is from giving any amount that the patient wants to a balance between protecting the public and giving the patient functional benefit. And protecting the public means not only diversion of the medications, it means also the patient's not taking medications which are um, going to put them at risk. And I think we've been quite successful at this because now we're seeing data showing that the number of deaths from opioids is continuing to go up, but the number of prescriptions is going down, meaning that the deaths now are not from prescription drugs. It's coming from illicit heroin and fentanyl, and I think the federal government now is working very aggressively in combination with uh, a number of organizations to get that, uh, address that problem. There was recently a, I believe, $400 million pilot study based out of uh, institutions in Kentucky, Ohio, New York, and I think New Jersey, uh, providing a broad-based approach, including not only office-based provision of Suboxone with uh, nurse case managers, but also with uh, law enforcement, the courts, religious leaders, all uh, and counseling, too, which has been a major issue that's been lost, all integrated together. So hopefully we can uh, bend the curve. Now we've bent the curve on prescribing. Hopefully we can bend the curve on deaths. John, add to that. This is a problem I've had. <clears throat> I've actually had pharmacists refuse to fill prescriptions uh, over 90 uh, morphine milligram equivalents, which, as we learned yesterday, <clears throat> we're at the annual meeting with uh, ASIP, uh, really has no basis in fact. Uh, the <coughs> fact is, as <clears throat> Dr. Helms said, you have to have the diagnosis, and if you've got the diagnosis vis-a-vis -vis cancer, you're not going to stop at 90 milligram equivalents. So access to care was huge. And what do you see uh, in the future here with uh, uh, your stuff that you're working on? So, so that's absolutely correct. So the uh, CDC guidelines have been um, uh, misapplied with the, with the 19, 90 milligram morphine equivalents per day. And not only with pharmacists, but it's actually certain insurance companies have uh, made it difficult to to fill prescriptions, and th that's a misinterpretation of the CDC guidelines. The CDC has publicly uh, uh, made statements to that effect, and uh, in the actual document of the uh, Best Practices Pain Task Force, which, again, should be out 
in its final version by the end of this month, uh, we addressed that issue, that that was not the intent of the CDC. As you said, there are certain conditions, for example, cancer, where that, that's, that's a different condition than, than non-acute or, or some people call it chronic pain, whichever term you like to use. Uh, sickle cell disease is another one. So there, there are these conditions where, as, as we said before, it's very important that the patient not be stigmatized and the physician prescribing not be the subject of overzealous uh, either state board or, or, or law enforcement uh, scrutiny. Yeah, Terry, this is the thing. Um, you know, I, I, I love your stories about people when they have these uh, very forthright treatments, groundbreaking, done ethically, uh, treatments in regenerative medicine. Do you see the opioid load coming down? It's hard to say because these treatments are not covered by insurance. So patients are having to pay out of pocket. And uh, even though people are interested, they can't afford it. And so I think if we can make it so patients are uh, can afford some more of these treatments or insurance companies will approve a lot of things that we, rec- you know, we recommend, um, yeah, the opioid crisis will will come down. Well, the, the people that that you're either injecting uh, intravenously or uh, by needle therapy at a joint or something like this, these are people that are motivated to get away from opioids, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah. Do you yeah. see them coming down on that load? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of them aren't even on opioids. They would rather do something um, that, um, you know, it's coming from their own body, something that's regenerative, than to even go down that path. And so, you know, for me, that's a blessing. I don't even have to deal with it. Absolutely. And, John, if uh, you you had a crystal ball and you could rub that crystal ball, um, where do you think we're going to be at uh, one year, three year, five year? Uh, well, first of all, uh, on the autologous uh, uh, regenerative medicine side, uh, in the actual uh, pain uh, task force document, uh, I, I, uh, I introduced and it was supported by the task force language that uh, research in regenerative medicine needs to be encouraged and supported. So I think the regenerative medicine space is going to be one that is going to be further expanding. I think that the uh, the uh, uh, technology for interventional procedures is going to uh, decrease the number of large uh, spine surgeries with fusions, et cetera, exactly. and using exactly. mi- more minimally invasive techniques. And again, whether they are those that are what we consider now conventional, but there's been a, a huge ramp up in in the uh, technological advances in, in some techniques that have been around for many years, such as neuromodulation. There are now significant advances. There's a significant advances in treatment of spinal stenosis with neuroclaudication. There's significant advances of treatment of sacroiliac joint disease, all which in the past patients would be taking a, a large opiates and or have had major fusion uh, type of surgeries. And uh, with regards to... Um, uh, the specialty of uh, interventional pain management, I think the, the lines between 
uh, sp- spine surgeons and interventional pain management physicians is getting uh, are getting more blurry because the interventional uh, pain physicians are now being identified as the go-to specialist uh, prior to consideration of major reconstructive surgery, which, as we know, um, frequently uh, and unfortunately uh, does not have the outcome that is intended by either the surgeon or the patient. That's right. And Stan, you uh, know this well. Uh, Portnoy, years ago, uh, released a paper on like 35, 40 patients, not very many, basically opening the door to this opioid load. Now, you do a lot of um, legal work, uh, you know, uh, for and against, um, and uh, in defense and in prosecution of. I mean, that's exactly what you should do. It's balanced. Where do you think uh, law enforcement sits with this? I am hopeful that, uh, particularly with the the initiative that uh, I just mentioned, that law enforcement is going to be in favor of uh, treatment of opioid addiction, substance use disorder. Uh, In terms of prescribing, I think that there will be a awareness of the need for appropriate prescribing and that if physicians are documenting the reasons why they're doing what they're going to be doing, then law enforcement's going to be very happy with that. Law enforcement exists for the pain physician primarily in the form of the medical boards. And the medical boards are looking at uh, prescription drug monitoring um, profiles to uh, identify patients whom they might want to uh, look at more closely. There is obviously nothing on a prescription drug monitoring profile that documents inappropriate prescribing, but they can, uh, for example, if you've got high doses coupled with uh, multiple sedative medications, provide a uh, basis for asking for a justification as to why that's happening. So... I think law enforcement is going to continue to be vigilant, and it's important for the physicians to document the rationale for their actions. And if there is a rationale, then they'll be fine. Yeah, that's right. So, okay, underscore documentation. I don't think law enforcement's fishing. I don't think they do that. I think they look for outliers. And those outliers are a risk to the patient and the community. Um, Absolutely. But we cannot ignore the fact, as you mentioned correctly, that there's a 20-plus percent decrease in opioid prescriptions from uh, physicians, uh, but the death rate is going up. So what's happening? Well, it's fentanyl and heroin. So um, I've heard uh, pain physicians being uh, blamed for the crisis, uh, where 3 to 4% of the prescriptions uh, from the great uh, bastion of uh, medical knowledge, Consumer Reports, this month, Apparently, there's one qualified pain physician per 24,000 people in America. It's not, it's not us, is it, Stan? No. The bulk of the opioid prescribing historically has been provided by primary care physicians of all types. And if you were to have them all stop prescribing, 
there wouldn't be enough bandwidth on the interventional pain or the pain management side to pick up the difference. Even if you were to go back to the levels of prescribing we had in the 1990s, there's just not enough pain physicians to uh, pick up for that. Um, so they were trying to do their best with what they had. It might be rural, um, all well-meaning. But um, now, you know, with uh, education and, and, you know, media presence, we uh, are educated. And um, I, I think we're doing a, a much better job. Let's take it, around the, uh, take it around the table here as we kind of wrap it up. Stan, you, you want to... Kind of tell me and tell the folks out there what your thoughts on medically assisted treatment is. Is it exchanging one drug for another? Oh, you know, that's a very good question because uh, that question came up when uh, HSS announced the uh, study and the argument that it's transmitting, changing one drug for another is such a travesty such a misunderstanding of what's happening, so stigmatizes the people who are getting treatment, and that phrase should just totally be thrown out. It's inappropriate and uh, hurts people who are genuinely trying to get treatment for a very serious and very widespread disorder. The people I see getting treatment are um, oftentimes have children, and anything that I can do to help them be sober so if they can raise their family, I'm going to do it. And if buprenorphine is not substituting, it's a good medical treatment for a real problem. Awesome. Okay, John, your take. <clears throat> take specifically on what? What would you like my take well, on? Well, are we exchanging one drug for another? Uh, buprenorphine, uh, I, I don't want to really bring up methadone, but buprenorphine, uh, for an opioid. We're just switching them out, right? Well, I think it has to be viewed in a broader context with regard to medications. And so also what will be upcoming in the report, assuming it, it makes the final cut, which, again, we're going to finalize by this Friday, is uh, there, there, although it's not an exhaustive list, there, there are six, and six, six or seven classes of medication that have to be considered, not necessarily used, and also, of course, not used simultaneously unless uh, they seem to be efficacious. And in no particular order, um, the uh, drugs other than the Schedule II narcotics that, that, that should be considered are basic acetaminophen, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, muscle relaxants, uh, antidepressants, and then uh, weaker uh, analgesics such as Schedule IV, tramadol, Schedule Three, codeine. Um, and again, all, all medications have side effects. So, so you, the side effect profile has to be looked at. The clinical uh, basis for prescribing a certain medication has to be looked at. But uh, clinicians should be encouraged to consider those types of medications before going to the stronger Schedule II uh, narcotic uh, medications. And so that's something that uh, that we at the Illinois Pain Institute have been doing uh, f- forever in our, in our 27 years of existence, and that's something that will be uh, uh, or should be highlighted uh, in the uh, final document uh, of the best practices uh, recommendations. But it's felt that buprenorphine is just not a substitute drug. It's actually a treatment. No. Uh, buprenorphine uh, is, is also uh, mentioned and, and, uh, in, in the report as well, and, uh, and access to it, uh, again, needs to be increased in an appropriate manner. Okay, Terry, your take. On the drugs? Yeah, I mean, buprenorphine. 
buprenorphine versus an opioid, it's, they're not the same, are they? No, not the same. But, you, you know, one of the things that I wanted to mention um, with the, the task force and, and medications and all is that, um, you know, we're looking at drugs such as Norco and we're looking at Tylenol 3 and, and such. You know, codeine is metabolized to opium and, and morphine is metabolized to opium or it comes from. And some of these drugs are, you know, are category one. Uh, and cannot be used, and so it is. It's it's still so confusing as to, you know, what drugs can be used and should be used and can be given refills and such. But back to your point about those two medications, um, the buprenorphine is is a good drug, and it should be you know used with care still, as with any other narcotics. Yeah. Well. Okay. Good talk. Any final comments? Regenerative. Regenerative. John, any final comments? Make sure you have a precise diagnosis. And if you can't make a precise diagnosis of the source of someone's pain, please refer to a physician who will be able to most likely make that diagnosis before care is initiated, especially opioids. Uh, John is modest, but John, tell, tell us what uh, you do with the, uh, the Lithuanian um, work that you do uh, that's a whole another hat but I'm uh, honorary consul of Lithuania here in the United States so I uh, have a diplomatic status and um, uh, in this country uh, and anyone who has any questions or interests regarding Lithuania I'm, I'm, I facilitate those uh, I've also uh, in at finishing my third term representing the uh, Lithuanians who live in the United States. There's about 900,000 of them uh, in the Parliament of Lithuania. And uh, in my second term, uh, I was chairman of a rather influential committee in Lithuania where perhaps our three most major accomplishments were um, uh, reigning in uh, the alcohol crisis, which is interesting. So in two countries, I've dealt with uh, substances. Uh, Lithuania, unfortunately, had a very high alcohol per capita uh, usage. And, uh, and now in our work there, actually all advertising for alcohol products is banned in Lithuania, whether it's Internet, television, newspaper, radio. The only thing that can be advertised is uh, alcohol-free beer. So the company can still have their name, um, you know, on billboards, but that's the only product they can advertise. The second accomplishment would be years before President Trump brought the issue, I initiated the issue in Lithuania that uh, it should meet the uh, 2% NATO requirement of the GDP going to defense. And uh, we successfully uh, passed that legislation, uh, again, before uh, Trump raised it, and, and we hope that other European countries will do it. And the third, perhaps, major accomplishment that I accomplished in the parliament in Lithuania was, uh, was a large project where we actually overhauled the Soviet-era labor code to make the country more uh, business-friendly and advance the economic growth of truly one of uh, America's closest allies in the European Union. Awesome. Stan, any final comments? Oh, I'll, I'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> well, it's really hard to have a... Uh, he, what he was doing, Stan was saying, bring up the knighthood, bring up the knighthood. I didn't want to embarrass him. I was going to do it in the in the out uh, outgoing part of the okay. segment. But uh, John has been knighted, and uh, uh, he's a big deal. So... Uh, we're proud of him and appreciate his work. Stan, final thoughts? 
Well, it's hard to uh, have a final thought after uh, John's list of accomplishments, but I think that what we do need to do is just, again, document the rationale. I think, uh, again, to, go, to quote uh, Gabor Rax, our patients have needs. We can help them with those needs. We have to identify what those needs are, and we have to have a multiplicity of way, ways of treating them, whether it's going to be regenerative or um, various procedures or medications. Uh, opioids provided appropriately with understanding as to their role and documentation of their uh, function, functional improvement uh, will be a, one component of many in the treatment of pain issues. Well, I appreciate everybody here, and uh, we're at the annual meeting and looking forward to uh, continued fellowship and the knowledge spread that we get here. It's the most fun. Uh, but, uh, again, thanks all. I appreciate you listening and coming back. Uh, I have handed the gavel over to Suter Dewan, who is um, an individual I've known for years, and this is going to be a great presidency for him. I'm, I'm real proud of him and proud to know him and uh, spend time with this uh, highly um, engaged individual with a background that only adds to meetings, to patient care, and to the community in general. So um, thanks again, and uh, I'll see you soon.